0: there, and welcome to the Oxano podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening.
1: I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to the book of Jonah. It's a minor prophet right in the middle of Obadiah and Micah. If you hit Malachi, you've gone too far. to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. There are
0: good missionary stories. And, you know, you get William Carey. If that's a name that you're familiar with, the father of the modern missionary movement. William Carey, he goes to India, spends decades there, loving, serving the people there in India. You have Lottie Moon, if you're familiar with Lottie Moon. Lottie Moon, she's the person in Southern Baptist life that we have our Christmas offering after where we go and we give and we help to fund missionaries all throughout the course of the year. But she was a Southern Baptist from Virginia that was so called to be able to take the gospel to the unreached in China in the 1800s. Or we have Yvette Adams who, if you saw the opening video, uh, she is deaf, but she is able to share the gospel with an unreached people. She actually was serving in Trinidad and then in Thailand for decades before the Lord called her back here to the States to be able to train other missionaries to be able to go. There are good missionary stories. People that serve faithfully for decades that maybe don't see results, but are long-suffering, perseverant, ready to be able to do the work that God called them to. And then there's Jonah. That Jonah, right here, we're in, the, we're in between series right now. We have a standalone sermon tonight. And we're going to do something a little bit different than we've ever done here at Oxana before. And if you came in, you were given one of the listening guides for this sermon. And so if you want to take a pen from the pew rack right in front of you, get ready to buckle up. We are covering the entire book of Jonah all in one sitting. And I'm going to do it in 35 minutes or less. That really, when we see Jonah... This wayward prophet, who he prophesied during the reign of a king, Jeroboam II, you can see it right there. He's actually mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, outside of the book of Jonah. But Jonah, like Cole said in his scripture reading, he's one of the minor prophets, one of the book of the twelve. And Jonah is unique in this regard. The rest of the prophetic books are books written by a prophet, the words of a prophet. Jonah is the only one that is written about the prophet, So we're already clued in when we start to read it alongside these other twelve, the way it was originally grouped together. There's something different about Jonah. That these are the words about a prophet. And I would encourage you, it's not to let your familiarity or what you think is your familiarity to stand in way of true understanding for this story. That as we go through, I pray that you hear with fresh ears this masterfully crafted retelling of true events in redemptive history. Y'all, they're Or unexpected turns in each chapter. This book is dripping with irony, full of things that you would not expect one after the other. And it is all under one large structure, four chapters. Chapters one and chapters three, it's Jonah and pagans. So we see Jonah, it's Jonah and people. And then chapters two and four, it's Jonah and God. So as we come here and as we look at this parallel structure, as we dive in and look at the details, Look with me first at uh, chapter 1, Jonah and the sailors. Notice first Jonah's commissioning and flight, if you want to write that in. Jonah's commissioning and flight. In verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, because they're evil. It has come up before me. Okay, so let's stop right there. We would expect the prophet of God... To do what God says. To obey God. That's what we would expect. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. And I can't say that very well. So I'm just going to call it T-Town from here on out. Okay, He's going to T-Town. And as he is headed over here to T-Town. From the presence of the Lord. And as you go through right here. Why? Why would he be doing this? We don't know yet. The author is intentionally veiling this from us. We are left asking the question, why, 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 over and over again until we get to chapter 4. So I'm going to leave you hanging there for a minute. And so he went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to T-Town. And so he paid the fare, he went down into it, that is the ship, to go with them to T-Town, away from the presence of the Lord. God's call comes to Jonah and Jonah says, thanks but no thanks. He runs in the opposite direction. He is going to great lengths to ensure that he cannot fulfill his commission. He goes down, finds an equivalent in that day of what would be our long way ocean liner. I mean, this is a big monetary investment. It's not like he's just getting a ticket on the bus. Like He is going somewhere and he is setting sail. You see, maybe Jonah thought of some of this as providence. Maybe he thought, hmm, I mean, there's a ship here. There's an open door for me to be able to go over here. Maybe, you know, maybe this is something that I'm supposed to do. I mean, if I wasn't supposed to do this, it wouldn't be this easy. It surely wouldn't be this easy. But this is instructive for us, y'all. There will always be a ship to Tarshish. There will, if you are fleeing from God, it will often be convenient that for us there might be an attractive option leading us away from where it is that god is calling us to go but just because that option is on the table does not mean that it is meant to be taken it might be put there as a means to be testing us that as we're going right here open doors they can be a way to test and approve God's will, but they are not the test of God's will. That as you come and as you see, oh, well, there's this open door, so that must mean that I'm supposed to walk through it. Oh, there's that boat over here, so that must mean I'm supposed to walk through it. No, but God is sovereign even over Jonah's attempt to thwart his plan, even though Jonah is trying to go in the opposite direction. And so Jonah is with the sailors. He's with pagan sailors, He is with people who are far from God outside of the people of Israel. And as he goes down into this ship, a great storm. It's so interesting when you look at the book of Jonah. It says, and God hurled a storm at the ship. He is the guy, he's just throwing it like a softball. That He is hurling this storm. The sea, the sailors, everybody's terrified. And the pagans, it says, are actually crying out to their gods. Their lowercase g, gods. And Jonah, where is he? He's fast asleep. He's at the bottom of the boat. And y'all, this is a terrifying place to be. Not just in a sea on a storm like in a ship on a storm-tossed sea, but running from God with no conviction. That's a dangerous place to be. So it eventually gets to the point they cast lots, it fell on Jonah, and they interrogate him. They go wake him up, and they start shaking him, and say, hey, this is, up, this is because of you. What have you brought on our ship? What are you doing? And then we get to Jonah 1, verse 9. Look at what Jonah says. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Again, not what you would expect. What you would expect is that Jonah at this point, that he is kind of jolted out of his hard-heartedness, right? that he is being tossed about people, they' pointing the finger at him, "We know this is because of you." and there is no backpedaling, no repentance, no remorse, no going back. He is obstinate and he's proud. And do you see what he says? I'm a Hebrew. I'm a part of the people of God, and I fear the Lord, and yet he's on the run, the one who made the land and the sea, and he is out there trying to think that he can flee on the very thing that God made, and this goes to show us there's a huge difference between what he says and how he lives. It is possible to profess belief in God while denying him by how we live. It is very possible for, and this, if you're here, if you're just checking the church church out, that it is very possible that what has kept you away for so long is because of this very thing. It's what we call hypocrisy. When what people say and how they live are out of joint, where they're not synonymous, where they can't go in sync with one another. It is possible to profess belief in God while denying him how we live. And they deliberate right here on how to calm the storm and Jonah and In an act that seems noble at first, Jonah says, throw me overboard. And for the longest time, I thought that this was just like a self-sacrificial thing for Jonah to do. But on a second reading, when we're going through and when we actually look at this, it is actually one of the most selfish things that he could have done. That what Jonah right here was doing is he was not going to turn back and run He was not going to tell these pagan sailors how they were going to be able to get out of the predicament that they found themselves in. What he says is, kill me. Throw me overboard. Send me to a watery grave. His blood being on their hands, pagans outside of the people of God, and him not being able to fulfill his commission that God had originally given to him. That Jonah right here, he is saying, kill me. But you see, then there's something else that we don't expect. The pagan sailors, they actually have more regard for his life than Jonah does. That they actually care. We see in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. This is the God of Israel, not their pagan gods. And they made vows. That they, here in this moment, they did not want to do this thing. But Jonah so compelled them, he's thrown over the edge. But the men feared the Lord exceedingly when they saw the winds and the waves calmed. And as they're going through right here. What we can see, that even in Jonah's hardness, the hard-hearted repented. That despite the prophet of God trying to thwart his plan, God was still able to accomplish what he was going to accomplish. And Jonah, as he is descending to his watery grave, God sends a great fish to be his marine life support, transportation, and prayer bench all rolled up into one. We see at the end of chapter 1, verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 1, Jonah and the great fish. Jonah, he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. You see, even in his deliberate fleeing, God spared the wayward Jonah. God spared the wayward Jonah. He saved, he rescued him. And Jonah, as he is there alone with his thoughts in the belly of the fish, he is admitting his backsliding. He's saying that he has been foolish. But if you actually go back and read Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, you will see that there is no sign that he is truly repentant. There is no sign or shift in his mind or heart that he is going to be going to T-Town. And that what he is doing right here, he says, he declares salvation belongs to the Lord. And then he is vomited out onto the beach. We get to chapter 3. And Jonah is now recommissioned and obeys. So the first time where Jonah was commissioned and flees, now he is recommissioned and he follows in obedience. And after his regurgitation, the Lord extends a recommission. Listen to the words of chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah went, arose to, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Did you notice how the call was the same? That what God had said to him in chapter 1 is the exact same thing that he brings before Jonah again here in chapter 3. This shows that God's word never changes. It never changes. It is as we sung just a few moments ago as Micaiah was leading us. That when when he says a word, we know that it will come to pass. That in his sovereignty, in his power, in his goodness, he will see to it that it gets done. God's word never changes, and we are to give ourselves fully in obedience to that word. And so Jonah, he starts walking in obedience. Finally, something you expect. He says, he arose and he went to Nineveh. Obedience to the unchanging word of God. Some of you, maybe some of you here tonight, you've been running from what you know to be obedience. That the Lord has called you to something, to go and do something, but for whatever reason, you might have been fleeing, going in the other direction, pursuing other things, whether it's out of pleasure, desire, pride, or thinking that you know or can do better. That the Lord is consistently acting in and through us and in and through His Word. And the Lord wants you to follow in obedience knowing that that is what is best for you and for other people and how he might use you to bless others along the way. So Jonah, I mean, he's obedient right here. But he's obedient to the absolute minimum. He did the least that he could possibly do. So now we see Jonah and the pagan Ninevites so if you've been able to see the way that this author has been structuring this word, that we have Jonah's commissioning in flight. And then he's with the pagan sailors. Now we have his recommissioning in obedience, and now he's with the pagan Ninevites. That these are working side by side through chapters 1 and chapter 3. But look at what happens in chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Some sermon. It's eight words in English. Five in Hebrew. That Jonah right here, he is coming doing the absolute minimum. It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message. That is, he's like an obstinate teenager. Like when you tell them to go clean their room and they put away one sock. And they're like, well, technically I cleaned my room, right? That I did what you asked. Oh, you didn't tell me to what extent you wanted me to do this, right? Some of you are rolling your eyes and you're like, you were that person, right? You know that you go in there, we're just working on technicalities. Well, I didn't know what, to what length I was supposed to obey, but technically I did obey. You told me to go and preach to Nineveh. Technically, I did come and preach to Nineveh. But there's no mention of why, how to stop it. Just listen to his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Bad news. And that's it. Ticking time bomb, coming off, no way of how to escape it. No mention of why. Not what you would expect, but the next is the same. Look with me in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. We would, it's not here on your outline, but if you were to go back and read, it's talking about the king. He is saying, hey, we're stopping everything. This is nationwide repentance that we're going through right here. Even the cows are going to join us in on it. You know, some wonky theology right there. But hey, they had just heard the message. And he is saying, all of us, from the top to the bottom, we are going through, we are believing God. This shows us that God's sovereign plans will come to pass. That right here, even on our best days and on our worst days, Even when we are trying our very hardest or days when we don't seem like we try at all. His plans will come to pass. God will act. And here in Jonah it shows us that it is often in spite of the messengers that he sends along the way. That the Lord is the one who is going to bring about his will. And once he sees that the people of Nineveh respond, once they believe and they repent. Look at verse 10. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You see, God right here, he grants and he relents over repentance. And you're like, well, what does that mean, repentance? This is a big churchy way. I've heard that a lot of times. I've read Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God in literature class, all that other kind of what, what are you talking about repentance? Repentance is you are going one way, and you stop you turn and you begin walking another. That there is this change of direction. There is this change of mind. This change of disposition. That you will no longer go down that road. And that what the people of Nineveh write here. They are repenting and believing. They are turning from the direction that they were going. And they are trusting in the living God. And this is something that God has granted to them. That God is the one who grants repentance. We see this in the New Testament. In the book of Acts chapter 11 Verse 18, this is when they heard these things, they fell silent, they glorified God. It was talking about the response to the gospel. And then to the Gentiles, God has also granted repentance. Or we see this in 2 Timothy 2. Paul, as he's writing to his young protege in the ministry, he talks about that the man of God must be gentle, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Have you ever thought about repentance in this way? that it is something that God grants. It is the response that God gives. And so it's something that when we are praying for those that we know and love that do not know the Lord, that we would pray that God would open their eyes, that God would save them, that God would grant them repentance. That they would be able to see the direction that their lives are going and that they would be able to stop and change and they would be able to go and walk and follow hard after Him, go from death to life, darkness to light. This is something that God grants and it is something that He relents over the king, the whole city. And y'all, this is a missionary's dream. I mean, if you were just to picture Yvette Adams, the woman from the opening video, she was talking about this. She was over in Thailand. If the... If the ruler, if the king of Thailand were to say, hey, we're going to shut everything down, we're going to listen to what Yvette has to say, and we are going to trust in her God, we are going to believe, we are going to stop the way that we're going, everybody, like, seriously, everybody stop. This is the way that we are now going to be going together, and national revival broke out. What would you do? I mean, you'd be ecstatic, right? That, yes, this is exactly what we would expect, but this is the book of Jonah, it's full of things that we don't expect. We get to chapter 4, the last chapter. In chapter 2, Jonah was in a great fish. And now, in chapter 4, Jonah's on a great hill. And he's praying a second prayer, not from the belly of a fish, but up high. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, of course. <laughs> this is hellish thinking. And we'll see why. Why? Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country, when I made haste to flee to T-Town? Okay, listen up. We are about to finally find out. At the very end of the book, chapter 4, why? The answer to the question, why? Why did he run in the opposite direction? He says, this is why I made haste to flee. For I knew that you are a gracious God And merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why did Jonah run the opposite direction? Because he knew the saving power of God and he didn't want the people of Nineveh to be saved. That God acts consistently throughout the ages, from age to age, he never changes. He stays the same. That this right here that Jonah is attributing to God is a verbatim quote from Exodus chapter 34 that we will, you would see as a constant refrain all over the Old Testament. The Lord our God is great, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is because Jonah knew the character of God in his heart to see people bow, basking in his mercy. He said, "I'm not going because I know the power of the message when I get there, and these people don't deserve it. These people are outside of the nation of Israel. These people, nothing I do is working. Kill me. I can't bear it. I would rather die than be able to see this right here. Because we look at Jonah four verses, verses three through four. Look at with me. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die." And to live just imagine the hate that has to be in this man's heart for him to want to die rather than to see people who don't know the Lord come to repent and follow him and the Lord he asks a question and whenever we see the Lord asking a question in the Bible it's not because he's trying to find out new information I love this I mean, he's, he's omniscient, he's all-knowing it's not like he's trying to find out, oh, really? Really? Tell me this. You know, I want to find this. No, whenever the Lord asks a question in Scripture, it is meant to draw something out of the person he is asking it to. In the garden, when he asked Adam and Eve, Where are you? It's not like he didn't know where they were hiding, but he was meaning to draw them out from their hiding. And what Jonah, what he is doing right here, with Jonah, do you do well to be angry? He is trying to draw Jonah out of his anger, out of his hatred, out of his prejudice, and he is trying to bring him into the light. Do you do well to be angry? And there's no answer. The conversation is left hanging, and Jonah's just walking up to a hill. You see, God acts consistently through the ages. He is a God who saves, and a God who delights in saving. But we pick up in verse 5, and we see just this bizarre episode that ends the book. We follow along with me. Jonah went out of the city, and he sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there, like a place to sit, tailgating, up here on this hill, looking out to see what's happening. And he sat under the shade so that he could see what would become of the city. Popcorn in hand, waiting for perdition. Maybe they're going to repent of their repentance. He's like, I've seen this before. People said they're going to follow him. It doesn't last. That's what I'm hoping happens here. And that's what this situation that I hope this is going to be unfolding right here. Maybe they will repent of their repentance. But verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant to come up over Jonah. That it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Finally, Jonah's happy. It's because this sprout comes over and shields out the bright light from coming down on his face. He goes to sleep, verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. You're like, what? What is going on? This God appointed this worm to come and to attack this plant so that it withered. Verse 8, and when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Again, he is asking, this guy has a death wish. He's going, throw me over into the sea. Oh, God, take! I don't want to be able to see them go in repentance. Now, the one that he had this one thing going for him, this one thing that would bring comfort to his life, this one thing that was going his way, that he had this thing that the Lord had given him, and then that was taken away. And he asked to die again, and no regard for the lives of the 120,000 plus people that were down in the city below, but he was so consumed and so fixated and cared so much about that plant that he had had for a day. But God asked a few more questions. Verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Jonah's starting to talk back to God. The same God who hurls storms and sends winds, the same God who commands great fish and tiny worms. This God says to him in verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being and perished in a night. It was here for a day. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Curtain falls, and that's the end of the book of Jonah. No resolution. We don't know Jonah's next steps. We don't know if he was jolted by this final sermon from God Himself. These questions, these probing questions that were shining a light on his dark heart. But God says, you feel sorry for that one day old plant, but not for the 120,000 people and all of their animals. It ends awkwardly with no answer to the question filled with tension. And the author of what he is trying to do and what the Holy Spirit through it to us today is trying to do is to help us to feel uncomfortable. Because you see, the book of Jonah, it's a mirror for us. That a lot of times with these stories, we're just looking for something that we need to do or how we can be like this person and that person. But you, sometimes we sit waiting for a change when we are the ones needing to change. That we are looking for something to change down. In the circumstances of this world. When we're looking down the hill. But Jonah, he was the one up on the hill that needed to change. His heart. His disposition towards other people. Everyone in this story needed to change. God's prophet needed to change. The pagan sailors needed to change. The pagan Ninevites needed to change. Everyone needed to change. And not just morally. All of us here need to change as well. We look at these stories and we can try to just mine them for moral nuggets, right? That are really good for coloring sheets. But what we need to do, I appreciate James A. Sanders and the way that he says, most biblical texts must be read not by looking in them for models for morality, but by looking in them for mirrors for identity. That as we look at this text in the mirror of it, We see that the book of Jonah, it confronts us. We see the worst in ourselves. That we are Jonah. Wayward, rebellious, running from God. All of us, without exception. That we are Nineveh. Living in ignorance, darkness, chasing after any and everything other than God. All in the same boat. We all are in need of salvation because we are enemies of God but aren't you glad that God loves his enemies that while we were yet enemies Christ died for us that there was enmity between us and God but at the right time Christ died for the ungodly we see this most clearly in the person and work of Jesus because Jesus he is the true and better Jonah what do you mean believe That Jesus, he is the true and better Jonah. He is the one who obeyed the will of the Father and came of his own accord. That he didn't run, but he pursued headlong. He came and he preached a sermon longer than five words. And he came talking about this thing called the kingdom of God and repentance. And rather than going up on a hill and hoping for judgment on the people down below, Jesus went up on a hill to receive judgment in our very place. This is what we've just celebrated this past weekend. That Jesus, the true and better Jonah, threw himself into the sea of God's wrath and spent three days in a borrowed tomb. But he wasn't vomited out onto dry land, but rose victorious over sin, death, and the devil. That Jesus, he has saved us. And we should want to see him save other people as well. We should repent and believe in him. Because we see all throughout the book of Jonah. That our God is a God who pursues. He pursues the wayward prophet. He pursues the wayward sailors. He pursues the wayward Ninevites. And he is still pursuing obstinate, rebellious, stubborn prophet at the very end. And it is that same God that is here pursuing you to this very day. That it is never too late to turn back and to trust in Him. It is never, you are never too far gone from the grace of God to be able to meet you where you are and to bring you back to Him. Let's pray. We see through the book of Jonah that God's heart is one for the nations. We've, we've sung all the earth to open the service that we want to see the name of Jesus lifted high over all the earth. So we're going to spend some time here at the end of this service to, to pray for the nations. Heavenly Father, we desire to see the name of Jesus honored, glorified, lifted up all over this world. And so, Father, we pray right now for people who don't know You in Southeast Asia, in Eastern Europe, in South America, in Africa. We'll spend just a few moments in silence praying for them. Pray that people's hearts would be open and receptive to the message of the Gospel. Pray that God would Send out workers into the fields. He might use them for the harvest. Pray for our missionaries that are already there. That God would encourage their hearts through the difficult days, the days where it doesn't seem like they're making a difference. And pray for yourself. That God would give you a heart for others. That you would be so compelled to pray for, to go, and to support those who go, to take the name of Jesus where it's not already known. God, this this gospel, this good news, this message of salvation that we have—it's too good to keep to ourselves. We pray that it would be let loose in places all over this globe. God, would you? expand our view of this world so that we can see others the way that you see them. God, that you love them. We pray that you would grant repentance. That you would relent and show mercy. And Father, that we would be able to catch a glimpse of the picture that we see in Revelation of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation surrounding your throne of grace, singing praises to the one who saved us. We labor to that end. We pray to that end. And we love to that end. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following Him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.